the politics of sound with Ian Carnegie. Give me ticket to the max. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ticket to the max. Yeah, hey. I'm going to take it to the max. Welcome back. It's May and this is the Politics of Sound podcast, where my guest this month is the YouTube comedy sensation Max Fosh. Now Max's video antics have included duck herding, printing his CV all over a car and parking it outside the BBC, and buying his own mini roundabout. All of which is great, but what's he doing on the Politics of Sound? Well, in a few days' time, he'll discover whether he's going to be the next London mayor and whether the influence of social media has now been translated into real political power. So a great discussion ahead with Max Fosh, his three favourite albums and much more on this month's Politics of Sound. Max Fosh, a very warm welcome to the Politics of Sound for May. We're still in lockdown, so how are you and where are you? I'm very well, thank you, Ian. Um, I am currently in White City in West London, where I have been for the last, what, 13, 14 months. Um, And uh, no, I'm very well. Um, It's been, (laughs) although this is kind of the conversation that we've all been having for the last 12 months, um, the the lockdown period has been kind of ups and downs. Um, Obviously, I am a YouTuber, so I create content. So it's been very difficult to try to generate things from essentially my flat. Um, but uh, I've had some, some some great highs and some tremendous lows as well. So I think it's been it's been a bit of both. Well, the most recent high for you has been your announcement that you're standing to be the next London mayor. You're a YouTuber, a celebrity YouTuber, very popular, huge amounts of hits on your videos. Mm. And when you announced that candidacy, you said life is going to become a lot stranger for me anyway. Has it lived up to billing so far? I think so. I think so. Just just learning the, uh, the intricacies of actually running for office in some description has been has been eye opening. Um, I, as I said in in have I said in all of my videos, I've got absolutely no experience in politics. So learning how to, I mean, it's it's very accessible for anybody, but learning the ins and outs of actually how to get your name down on the ballot as a mayoral candidate has been has been eye opening. In what way? So just just all the, the, the hoops you need to jump through and those hoops have changed somewhat due to COVID. So normally um, as a candidate, you need to get 10 signatures from every borough in London, from people who are on the electoral roll. Um, However, because of COVID, they wanted to reduce the amount of uh, face-to-face contact and those need to be wet signatures. So they need to be people that you see in person, they sign it, you give it back. Now, because of COVID, they want to reduce that, that contact. So it's now been put down to just two. So it's then become a lot more um, accessible to, to, to independent candidates rather than parties. And then you've got a whole other issue with the fact that as a party, you get the list of the electoral numbers as well. So once you register yourself as a party, you will be given the electoral role that has all the numbers on it. But as independent, you don't have access to that. So when you're signing the people up from each borough, they ask for their name, their signature and their electoral number. So a huge part of my um, application process to become mayor was just calling or messaging or contacting all of the boroughs and councils and saying can I please have the electoral number for Ian Carnegie now this is all it's all public knowledge you can go in uh, to the the local library and, and transcribe it yourself but obviously all the libraries are closed well, so, my electoral <laughs> number is is very well known everybody knows that <laughs> exactly um, but it's something that I think that 99% of people don't know their electoral number because I don't think it's anything that we're told to keep or to keep hold of it's more of a record for the boroughs so that 
was that was, I tell you what that was a with no with no kind of party structure behind me just me trying to call up 33 boroughs and going through the bureaucracy of all of that that was that was definitely eye-opening but you have a campaign manager i mean there was a very very exhaustive process wasn't they in the appointment of this particular individual i think we can see this on youtube of course yeah my campaign manager i they they, they just said i think i think that that was that was very much for the video um i don't think dad is actually going to be getting involved with the, the nitty-gritty of the campaign stuff he's too busy with work um but um he yeah, my, my flatmate Dan is is my quote unquote campaign manager. I thought, well, I, I'm woefully underqualified for the role of mayor, so why don't I just get one of my friends who's also woefully underqualified for the role of campaign manager to be my campaign manager? So uh, it was uh, it was just the case of asking him in the living room, "Hey, do you want to be do you want to be a campaign manager?" Yep, sure, let's do it. So yeah, he's uh, he's been helping me here and there, but other than that, I've had a great great um, ha- hand from people who watch the videos. I mean, I put out a call when I realized the amount of work, the the main work was just contacting all the boroughs because I realized that 33 emails back and forth from different boroughs and them taking a while wasn't going to be a good idea. So I kind of put a bit of a call to arms up and and 15 people from my channel just immediately replied, said, yes, I'd love to get involved. How can I help out? And they were absolutely phenomenal. I gave each of them two or three boroughs and said, can you try and find the electoral numbers for, for X, uh, X, Z and Y? And, and they did it with, with a plom. But you're somebody, as a YouTuber, you're someone who is used to working very hard, at least by your own admission. You said in a recent interview, people think that success on social media is instant. It isn't. It takes as much hard work, if not more so, than any other career to make it. What did you mean by that? I think... Oh, I don't remember saying the last bit about it takes more success or more hard work or more than, than other careers because I can't really speak for other careers. But I definitely agree with the initial sentiment, which is because social media is such an instant platform, you can get anything that you like from social media. If you want to listen to a podcast about politics, it's a click away. If you want to watch the sports highlights, it's a click away. And so one sees these YouTubers and in the old days kind of vloggers who were filming themselves going to Tesco's and we hear articles and we read articles that they made 10 million pounds last year. It's very easy for someone who isn't involved in that world to be like, that's ridiculous. How do they manage that? Um, whereas in fact, it take it is, a, it is a platform and it's an industry where the barrier to entry is so low that you've got every man and his dog you've got to be better than. So I have been making videos since probably 2014 and only last year was I able to make this my full-time job. So I think I I listened to a podcast where someone said, if you're going into YouTube for the money, you will never make it because you will not have the patience and the drive that it takes to make it worth it in the end. Um, Because if you're looking at your average salary over the six years in which you're making videos, it doesn't quite add up. Um, Well, in my case anyway. Um, So yes, I think social media is a platform and and is is an environment that is is pretty savage um like you have constantly got to be uploading content to this beast that is in like wants more and more and more and more and as a result you see a huge amount of creators who burn out who have a short period of time on the on the platform i mean social media as a job has only been around for about 10 years but i can only think of probably five creators that have stayed that whole time because they've learned to adapt and they've learned to put up processes that that are um 
uh, healthy for them. I think it's just it's just healthy mentally. It's a really draining, really draining experience. Um, so yes, I would definitely say that that social media and, and YouTube takes a lot of work for you to get um, to, to for it to be your full time job. I mean, it's very interesting because the last few years have seen the rise and rise of the YouTube mm. celebrity, and particularly this crossover into the mainstream media with social media stars launching successful music yeah. careers, appearing on Strictly Come Dancing, etc. Are you just maybe trying to take it one stage further by achieving some tangible political power? I think it's like I didn't when I was st- when I started, but it is really interesting to to look at that question. I mean, if we look at the states last year, there are two um, Kylie Jenner of the Kardashian family and another YouTuber called David Dobrik who has got something like fifteen or twenty million subscribers. They both did um, voting registration drives before the general before the election in the states last year. And they saw the greatest uptick in voter registration ever, ever seen an over recorded period like. And so that does show the power of social media. It shows the power of having an audience in a community that is really engaged with what you do. So I think that with this, it will be and this is a point that I want to get onto later about voter registration rather than or I do want to beat my, my chum Lawrence. But there is also an element of trying to get young people to register to vote. But it will be interesting. And I think that. The mainstream, if we can put it in that quotation marks, is coming to realize that, hey, maybe these people aren't just people who are vlogging themselves in Tesco's getting the semi-skim milk. And they actually have a tangible real life um, value to whatever it is, whether that's politics or entertainment or or just other areas of, of, of business. Um, but I think I think they're here to stay. I think YouTubes are here to stay and their influence I think can only grow at least over the next five years. So you've just woken up. It's the morning after the night before yeah. in which the rank outsider, <laughs> Max Foch, has achieved one of the greatest political upsets in electoral history, probably the greatest. And you've been elected mayor of London Lord Mayor Foch, what's the first thought that goes through your head? You might have to bleep this one out, but my first thought is shit. <laughs> <laughs> I have been asked this and, and my family and friends said, but what if you actually win? And at first of all, I think, okay, guys, let's, let's just take a little step back. If we look at the last election, it needed what I think Sadiq got 1.6 million votes in the first, in the first, um, first round. Um, and or at least that was the threshold for, for one to become mayor. So I don't think I'm going to get that. But hypothetically, if we are playing this game, if I do, I think that I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. <laughs> I'm going to have a bit of a moment. Thought, what the hell have I done? Um, it's uh, I'm not sure the ins and outs of whether you can pass on the baton to be London mayor. But if, if I can't, then I will very much make sure that I do the best job that I can. Surround myself with people who really know what they're doing and really understand the process and just crack on. However, Ian, I always think this is, this will forever remain a concept. I have absolutely no intention and belief of winning the election on May the 7th. Or, well, waking up on May the 7th or May the 6th. But you're going to be overseeing a budget of £17 billion. What do you want to do with that? I mean, it's a nice shopping spree, isn't it? I, think, <laughs> I, know, I know that that's a very... It's a, it's a good question to kind of fish out what I would do. But if I'm honest, I have absolutely no idea, Ian, because I'm not even entertaining the idea um, that, uh, that I'm going to be mayor in any shape or form. Um, 
and I would probably leave that to the experts, well, the, the advisors who know what they're talking about rather than me splurging £17 million on. I have a vested interest here. I live in a London borough and I'm, I want to know what I can expect from the newly elected Lord Mayor Fosh. Well, absolutely nothing here. This is what I got asked this question the other day by a journalist to so, say, so why do you want to be mayor? And I said, I don't. I don't want to be mayor in any, in any shape or form. Um, but I thought that this would be an interesting exercise, an interesting experiment, not only just to beat Lawrence, um, but also uh, to, to try and get voter registration up amongst young people. You mentioned Lawrence, and of course that's Lawrence Fox, the well-known actor who was on this show a couple of months ago and is indeed running to be London mayor. What's he done to upset you and, and why do you want to run against him so much? Well, the reason I want to run against him is because I realised that, hey, I'm not, uh, not going to win. I'm not going to be um, battling amongst the big boys of uh, Sadiq and Sean. Um, so it's always nice to have a bit of competition. And so I looked around the field. I looked around the field, pardon me, and I thought, well, who who is my closest uh, competition here? And I thought, well, there's another posh bloke who's got absolutely no experience in politics. Let's give him a go. Um, so that's the main reason why I want to be, uh, run against Lawrence Fox. We've got a pretty very similar background. We both have a similar experience in politics. Um, he's got five million quid backing and I've got absolutely nothing. So uh, it would be a, it's a nice little David versus Goliath story. It's very interesting. I mean, you have around 400,000 followers on YouTube mm. and around 80,000 on Instagram. And Lawrence Fox has about five million quid in backing. Is this maybe a fascinating arm wrestle between the power of social media versus the power of money? A hundred percent. And when the when the results come out, I'd be apps. I'd be so interested to see the cost per vote, as it were. Um, for Lawrence's campaign compared to mine. Now, we have absolutely no idea how many votes I'm going to get. I also foresee myself getting zero votes because I am instructing my audience, although please get behind me, um, please also look at all of the manifestos and make an informed decision of which candidate you think will be best for you. So I'm not blindly telling people to to vote for me um, because I think that would be slightly irresponsible. But I do think that there is kind of an interesting... Um, if if anything, just kind of an interesting political uh, take for the 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 universities to have a look at to see if we've never really seen it before, other than kind of uh, old Donald over in the states. But that was kind of a different that was a different kettle of fish. I am purely a YouTuber with no experience in politics, just giving it a go. So I have absolutely no idea how many votes I'm going to get. I think you'd be better off asking um, another YouTuber who's also running called Nico Omalana, who is much much bigger than me in terms of. Um, reach on social media he's got about three three and a half million subscribers and has one of the most loyal fan bases on youtube now having a loyal fan base on youtube is incredibly valuable um someone said to me the other day oh but lawrence has got eight hundred thousand followers on twitter and i and I, I and i would never compare like for like him having that bigger number on twitter than i would on youtube because i still think that youtube audience is far more valuable if you think of the amount of time that a youtube audience will engage in the content of somebody my videos are about 10 minutes long so 400,000 people engaging a video that's 10 minutes long rather than 800,000 people engaging with a tweet that's 15 seconds of their time i would much prefer the former so I think YouTube is a really, really, really valuable platform. And we're seeing we're seeing a lot of the parties and celebrities even in lockdown. So if you look at comedians in lockdown in back in March, they were all obviously being told by their agents and management companies, guys, go on YouTube. You've got to build that YouTube following. And you saw them make three videos and they didn't perform as well as they'd hoped. And then they stopped. Um, YouTube is it's it was it was seen the other day as the number one platform with consumer spending so it is the platform that has the most amount of spending by people who consume it so it is such a powerful platform 
and it would be incredibly interesting interesting to see what what effect that has on on a real life actual big boy uh, event such as the london election fascinating indeed and in a fairly short time, I mean, you yourself has, have established yourself as something of a YouTube phenomenon, I think it could be said, with some <laughs> very kind. stylish, very funny videos seen by many thousands of people, millions of people. How did you get involved in this type of thing in the first place? So my my whole thing was hospital radio. I want to be a radio presenter. And um, I was at university in Newcastle and I did join the student radio, enjoy the hospital radio, and I looked at all of my radio icons that, that I just loved listening to the kind of the Chris Miles, the Terry Wogans, the Greg James's, Nick Grimshaws. I looked at all of these guys and thought, what did they do? And they all seemed to go into student radio, hostel radio, radio. So that was my, that was my route. And I joined, uh, and they all kind of won various awards and accolades and met people along the way. And so I did that with hostel radio in Newcastle. Uh, I joined a station called Radio Tyneside and I did that for three years. And after those three years, I'd won, I won uh, the HBA Best Newcomer Award at the Hostel Broadcasting Association Conference. And I kind of was ticking all the boxes as I was going. I thought, right, here we go. Where's my job? Um, and then I got two, I got two demos with Heart Northeast and BBC Radio Newcastle. And as you can imagine, it's like, welcome back to Heart Northeast. It's Max here. And then I walk in and go, <laughs> hello, nice to see you all. This is Kylie Minogue. Um, so obviously that, that radio dream died quite quickly. Um, because I realized maybe, uh, and also the, the idea of sitting behind a desk and, and being behind a microphone wasn't that kind of appealing and sexy for me at the time. But do you think that maybe the way that you speak, your accent, your sentence construction, maybe possibly conspired against you in that particular job application? I'm sure it did, but that's in the Northeast. I think that's because if you're listening to local radio, you want to hear local voices. You don't want to hear, you don't want to hear me from, from London um, plumbing away. So I think, yeah, especially in the Northeast, but um, I, I'm not sure that's the case just generally. I think that it's, it's got to do with how good you are. I also probably wasn't very good on, on hostile radio. I was kind of taking an Alan Partridge pastiche and turning it up to 10. Um, but so, so when I realised that this, this radio stuff wasn't potentially going to work I thought well well I need to I need to have some video stuff as well to because in my mind it was all about getting an agent I thought once you have an agent you've made it and everything it all just fits into place so I thought well I've got my radio stuff let me kind of grab some some video footage and there was a, a TV society at Newcastle University that was filming kind of a series in which they talked to students who were on nights out and I approached them and said, hi, guys, can I be one of your presenters? And they said, no, of course you can't. You've got, you got to work three years. You've got to work your way up from the bottom for three years before you become a presenter. There were no vacancies there for you, were there, at all? Of, you had no, to do your own thing, didn't you? Of course. So I thought, well, hold on. Well, why don't I just do my own thing? So um, I just stood on the street with literally my phone. It was the first, the first piece of a kit. And, and I got myself. I, latched, I borrowed a microphone from the hospital radio station and just went out and made five pieces of content and just interviewing students who were on nights out and that was that and this was back in 2017 and I put them out and yeah. Did you have a ready-made audience then? I mean that was fairly smart to do because people were seeing themselves on these videos and then you had a ready-made audience. Well I didn't have a ready-made audience at all other than my friends that I had on Facebook so I was posting all of these on Facebook and I was getting what we call relationship engagement which is when you tag someone because it evoke something that you have a, a personal relationship with somebody else. So if I had interviewed you, Ian, outside a nightclub in, in Newcastle and you were with 
a girl that you fancied, I would tag you and be like, oh, look, I see that you, you, you managed to uh, see the girl that you fancied last night, Ian, well done, or something like that. And it, it caused this, this, I mean, very small engagement amongst my wider circle of friends who would tag each other and say, oh, that was funny. Oh, I can't believe they said this. I can't believe that they were seen there. Um, and then friends of mine were saying, you should, you should just keep going, just keep doing this. And I did it throughout my last year of university. And then when I finished university, it was a little bit of a, ah, now what? I worked in a, worked in a bar for about five or six months, but was still making these YouTube videos. And I had about 50 of them that were, were on the Facebook channel, but also on YouTube. They were getting no views. I think they were probably getting 40 or 50 views. Um, and then I managed to just kept, kept on making videos. And I made some videos with two friends of mine that went incredibly viral and it just kind of all snowballed from there. So what was that critical moment? What was the moment when you made a video, the one, the breakthrough video, if you like, because I have to say, I, I enjoy your videos very much. They are very funny and they're slick. You know, there's very slick editing going on there. It's a very easy watch, isn't it? Is that, is that what you're trying to create? Yeah, I mean, but that that comes, you learn that over time. Um, and so the, the big break, um, came when I was in London, I was I walked past a YouTuber that I watched a lot, who was called Zach Alsop. And I messaged him and said, he, he made some really, really cool videos that I've been watching for years. And he was much bigger than me at this point. And I messaged him and said, hi, Zach. Um, I just saw you walk past the street um, in London. I'd love to be able to help out with filming if any, if, if I can. These are my these are my credentials. I've made 50 videos. I've got X amount of views. I'd love to help out wherever I can. And amazingly, he replied and said, yeah, sure. I actually need someone for tomorrow. Like, do you want to come and help out? And so slowly I became... I started filming for him and um, we became friends and we then made a video together with uh, another friend of his where I um, snuck into London Fashion Week as this fake model. So London Fashion Week was happening and <laughs> yeah. he just said, well, there's an opportunity here. So let's dress you up in silly stuff. Let's stand outside of where all the shows are. Let's flash our um, flashes on our camera and see what happens. And that's exactly what we, what we did. And as a result, I got invited. I was I looked the part and I just walked the walks and talked the talk and pretended to be very bored, which is apparently what <clears throat> Models do at London Fashion Week, and um, <laughs> and that and so we posted that video, and it showed me going into kind of all the shows and um, and going to parties afterwards. And we posted that video, and it, it got something. And to be fair, this was on their channel, so this was not this was not on my channel, but it was on yeah, another platform. Absolutely. Um, and I think uh, the current uh, total is on. I think it's on twenty five million views. It went it got went viral in China. I was famous in China for a bit. It got about seventy five million views on their social media platform Weibo. Um, I was on the front page news of the Pakistan evening news as part of the fashion section about London Fashion Week and it just went more viral than I could possibly imagine and people think well that was just luck that was the moment where you kind of had your big break and it went from there but the reason why people stuck around and the reason why after that five minutes had finished people could go back to my channel and see the 50 videos that I'd made whilst at university and thus that made them stick around so we've seen it so often kind of YouTube is having a big flash in the pan, a huge viral video, but they've got nothing else on the channel. So the audiences just move elsewhere. But I luckily had some stuff there for them to watch. Were you, would you say, the class clown at school? I mean, did you maybe create a, a personality for yourself as a sort of humorous eccentric, which is what I sort of 
see from the video. No, not at all. I was the most goody-goody two-shoes you could possibly imagine, Ian. And what was interesting, though, is I had a bit of a, I had a, bit of a double life when I was at school. Um, and I moved away at university because I absolutely love drama and musical theatre um, and acting and music. But I also loved sports. And I understood this kind of, um, um, at school, uh, this this notion of if you're in the sports team, like if you're in the first 11 cricket team, for example, you are kind of a cock of the walk at school. And so I find my, I found myself in the first 11 cricket team because I was relatively okay at cricket, but also just wanting to sing Billy Elliot on the bus home. So there was this weird dichotomy where I kind of had two, two sets of friends and two lives at school. And um, both of whom I had different kind of um, uh, likes and dislikes with. But I think when I was at university, it allowed me to purely, like, totally explore that and just to have fun. And I think that's what all I try to do with the videos is try to have fun. I've also loved making people laugh um, ever since I was younger. Um, I remember my first joke I ever told was when I was in the car with my mum and we were listening to uh, classic FM, classical FM, and a, a piece by Bizet came on, um, Carmen's Bizet. And uh, my mum, um, I asked my mum, mum, who, who wrote this? And she said, oh, Bizet. And I was probably about eight at the time. And I said, oh, he must have been a very Bizet man. And my mum was in stitches. And I thought, I know it's a terrible joke. And I think my mum was just being polite. <laughs> it's pretty bad. It's yeah. terrible. But for an eight-year-old to get your mum to absolutely howl with laughter, I thought, oh, this is quite fun. I think I, I think I quite like this. So there's always been that. And when I was doing plays and stuff, I always tried to be the, the comedic character. And um, there's always been that element in me trying to make people laugh. That's very interesting because the, the Bizet connection has retained because in a lot of your videos, you have backing music. And very often that is the habanero <laughs> from Carmen by Bizet. Yeah. Why is that? It, is that because of that? Well, there's a number of reasons. The main reason is that it's copyright free. So obviously with uh, with music, <laughs> with UG for music, these these record labels are very hot on finding out whether people have used their their stars um, songs. And they as a result, they can something what is called claiming the revenue of the um, of the video. So basically, if you use their music for more than 10 seconds, they take all of the revenue from the video. So but with classical music, when the artists or the composers have been dead for more than 100 years, I think that it's it's copyright free. Um, and there's a huge yeah. selection of these kind of very well, well, well known and famous classical pieces that I just thought was a, was a nice, also nice juxtaposition, especially when I was doing the street smart stuff, which is people who have had a few drinks on a night out and, and being a bit sloppy, um, having this wonderful piece of just Carmen underneath was, was a funny juxtaposition. So it's a combination of, yes, there is kind of that, um, that old school um, connection with my mum, but also the fact that it's copyright free. You're also a stand-up comedian. How I think that's very kind. That's very kind of you to say that, Ian. <laughs> well, I'm just fascinated. I mean, how does your video personality and filmmaking style translate into a stand-up act, or does it? Is it a totally different experience? That's, that has been the big problem that I was... So I've done maybe 10 or 12 stand-up shows before COVID hit. I started doing them in November 2019 and kind of did November, December, January. Um, and I realized that I had, first of all, I've always wanted to give stand-up a go. And I thought, I've got this opportunity, I've got this audience here that will fill out a relatively large space. It would be foolish of me not to really go for this. And so then the next question was, how exactly, how do I translate this online audience to a, to a stand-up persona? One that well, people will come and think, oh, that's, that's, that's just like he's doing a video, but on stage. But also I don't want people going there being like, 
oh, that's got absolutely nothing to do with what I like in the video. So it's this, this fine line between the two. Um, and I think that I found a stand-up show that, that very much encapsulates the two. It's probably a mixture of stand-up and a, and a theatre piece in the sense that it's, it's not me standing on stage with a microphone and just be like, right, I'm going to make you laugh for the next 60 minutes. It's more telling stories from videos that are already out there or videos that I haven't published um, which work well for um, the stand-up set. So, for example, I, uh, I, <laughs> I wore a secret microphone to one of my mum's drinks parties with all of her friends and recorded all the conversations that I had with my, her mates. And that, that, that is a 15-minute segment, which is a lot of fun. So it's, uh, it's, it is a difficult, it's a fine line to, to tread between the two. But you, of course, are also a very talented musician with a rare talent. I mean, you can play Match of the Day on your cheeks isn't that right there's been a, i mean there's been a history of fine performances on this podcast i mean i think our listeners need to hear a little bit of this oh god you're holding the microphone yeah i'm holding the microphone i i this was the the, the background to this was that i heard another radio presenter do this when i was at, when i was at student Oster radio i thought oh god i think every, that's really easy everyone could be able to do that <laughs> and it managed to be and it, i Imp I, I, when I put in my demo for an awards uh, ceremony, which I won, it was part of um, the the demo. And when I got on stage, uh, the the compere said, "Oh, Max Fosh, you can play Max of the Day on his cheeks." And Alan Dedicote, who is the the announcer of Strictly and the National Lottery, yes. just shouted out from the back of the room, "Which cheeks?" Um, and so I've always I've always been slightly uh, been, uh, been slightly fond of that memory. So I'll give it a go. But I am yeah I am holding the microphone between my hands. So let's just give it might might sound absolutely awful. <laughs> it's going to sound brilliant. I'm going to get on the piano. I feel a duet coming on. There you go. That would have been picked up, hopefully, by the mic. <laughs> One of the most legendary performances we've ever had on the politics of sound. But are you a musician? Do you play conventional musical instruments as well? I, I had a joke. I, I was speaking about this with my sister the other day, the kind of the... The, the, the process and the different musical instruments that I went through when I was younger that we all kind of went through when we realised that we weren't particularly good at any of them so it of course started with the recorder um, <laughs> and then moved and then moved on to the violin which as you can imagine kind of a seven year old just <clears throat> hacking away at a violin which did lasted about six months and then I chose the saxophone for a bit and I think I was I was um, <laughs> slightly hampered by my desire or lack of thereof to practice so my lessons were purely my practice moments so I wasn't very good with it so I ended up um, picking a musical instrument that needed absolutely no practice really which was my singing voice so I do sing quite a lot um, I join I'm in a choir um, just for fun on Tuesday evenings like we get together with with some people and we sing all sorts and we do gigs here and there um, but no there is there is a an, as I said earlier I absolutely love musical theatre so there is an outlet there musically a little bit, but in terms of kind of traditional conventional um, instruments, I am woefully um, underqualified. And have you taken big parts in musicals? Have you been the lead maybe? Um, yes. Yes, I was, uh, I was um, Franz Liebkin in The Producers, uh, made famous by Will Ferrell in the movie. So that was at university and that was my first show that I was in in the Theatre Society at university and I absolutely loved it. Bing, bang, bing, bang, boom. Oh, 
I was also, I've been in Company, um, I've been in Little Shot of Horrors, I've been in uh, also Fiddle on the Roof. So yeah, I, I... I mean, you look as if you could do a really good Seymour Krellborn. <laughs> I don't know very... if that's coming over as a compliment or what. But I don't know. Go. I mean, I'll, I'll leave that up to the lesson to decide. Um, but no, I, I've always, and I would absolutely love it. And we're seeing, we're seeing the Joe Sugg, Joe Sugg, for example, who's a YouTube personality, becoming a, a, a lead or a main part in Waitress on on the West End. Um, and the, the conversation of whether that should be, I mean, I know it's a very uh, difficult conversation to be had amongst, especially people who trained and the dichotomy between, are we getting more punters in to, to fill buns on seats and therefore get more people to watch musicals or are we taking a, a, a role away from a, a trained um, musical theatre performer? That's a different conversation to have. But I would absolutely love the opportunity to be able to do that at some point in my career because I, I just think that it would be, I mean, for purely selfish reasons, it would be an absolutely incredible experience. Well, we're going to hear more about your musical passions now because it's time for you to visit the wonderful Politics of Sound record shop. You're going to get to pick three of your all-time favourite albums and we want to hear all about them. Are you ready to go in, Max Fosh? Yes, I am, of course. So, Max, how was your visit to the Politics of Sound record shop? It was an absolute delight. I had everything that I wanted in there and more. It was difficult to choose three. Well, we absolutely aim to please. So your first choice that you've come out of the shop with is a 2019 release on the Atlantic label. What's the album? Um, It is by a musician called Ben Platt, and the album is Sing To Me Instead. Um, And Ben Platt is a uh, historically a musical theatre actor. Um, and this is his first foray really into kind of music. Um, and he released an album, this album, Sing To Me Instead. And it's the reason I love it is because, first of all, his voice is, is absolutely stunning. But also it's, I think, like all music, it evokes uh, a time um, in in one's life. And I think, honestly, it, it evokes and, and reminds me of lockdown, of this, this pandemic. Now, you could argue that that's... Uh, it's not a great time to to remember, but I think that as soon as I will hear it, I remember both the highs and the lows of the last year, um, and that's why that's why I've chosen it. quality of the songwriting is absolutely wonderful I think mm. and I'm reminded slightly of a sort of 1970s singer-songwriter style probably of the standard of something like Tapestry by Carole King it, it's that good mm. could you have been a singer-songwriter do you think no I don't that's that's a, I, I've all <laughs> I always wanted to be Freddie Mercury. I always wanted to be Freddie Mercury, but I think Why? because I think he was the showman and he was the one who everyone was looking at and he was taking up all the attention. So I was basically just being a very egotistical child. But uh, in terms of when it comes to the actual, and um, to, to, to have the actual um, skill and talent to, to understand music, I think that's when I would have come unstuck. I don't think I would have had the patience to, to really hone my craft and become the singer songwriter that, that, that requires hours and hours of dedication. So I think I would have loved to in, in um, 
a utopian world, but I don't think I would have been able to put in the time. Well, he honed his craft, Ben Platt, in The Book of Mormon on Broadway, and then he shot to stardom in Dear Evan Hansen. Yeah. Are you a fan of that musical? I'm a fan of both of those musicals massively, and Dear Evan Hansen especially is, is a really interesting one because it follows from the Hamilton ilk of the sense that it was a musical I knew off by heart before I even went to see it. Um, and we're seeing this in musical theatre a lot. The, the the soundtrack needs to be very... It needs to have a cult following before the opening curtain even goes up. Um, and I think that, that can have both a positive and a detrimental effect on the musical. I think when I saw Hamilton, because it is an opera and it is sung the whole way through, um, I knew the show before I'd even seen it. And so it kind of detracted from the musicals. I knew the storyline. I knew all the uh, the little ad-libs and quips and the jokes. Um, so it was like seeing my favourite movie for the 15th time. So Dear Evan Hansen is a similar, is a similar, um, is similar to that in the sense when I saw it, I thought, I've already heard this before. I've seen this before. And because obviously it's live theatre, it doesn't match up to the uh, the studio quality of the sound and the, the, the performance. So, I was left slightly disappointed, but I absolutely love the show. Um, and it's, uh, it's yeah, something I really enjoy. So I guess you came across the album purely because of your knowledge of him and his involvement in those musicals. It wasn't a big hit in this country. I think it got to number 79. Yeah, I, I, I heard about him making his own stuff from him, his performance in Dear Evan Hansen. And he released, he released one of the songs that are single, and I think it was... Um, what was it? Uh, Share Your Address, which is this really upbeat song about um, a, a man who's coming home from a date and he is fantasizing the, the rest of their life together because the date went so well. And it's this really upbeat, boppy, um, high-energy song. Um, and but when and, and when I first listened to it, I thought, God, this is the catchiest thing ever. I just sing it in the car, humming it everywhere. Um, and so I was just eager to hear more when he did release the album. And the rest of the album, I mean, it is there aren't that many songs that are very upbeat. It's a lot of very melancholic and slow ballad types. But um, it's it got me hook, line and sinker to listen to the rest of the album, definitely. It's a great album. As you know, on this podcast, we have our own Politics of Sound house band, and I'm going to join them now. We're going to play one of those melancholic tracks that you just referred to, and that's In Case You Don't Live Forever. Wonderful.
the politics of sound band there with the song In Case You Don't Live Forever from the album Sing To Me Instead by Ben Platt. So, Max, what's your second choice from the Politics of Sound record shop? I have chosen um, Bear's Den and their release called Islands um, that I think was released, if uh, I think it was 2015, 2016, I think was when it was released. Yeah, I think it's actually a 2014 release. Ah, but 2014. It was, but it was something which I think represents this sort of renaissance of a new type of sort of folk rock. Mumford and yeah. Sons would definitely be one of those acts which have sort of spearheaded yeah. that. What is it about that style that you particularly like? I like this style because, again, I mean, for a number of reasons. They were a band... So growing up, my musical taste was very much shaped by my older sister, as um, as we will see from the la- my last album. Um, but... Bears Den was the first, and so as a result, whatever she listened to, I listened to. We had we had a CD player that was in her room, and so we would listen to whatever she wanted to listen to. And so when I kind of uh, grew up and um, went to school and went to university, um, it was the first time where I explored what I liked um, from a musical point of view. And I think firstly, Mumford and Sons were, were in that particular bracket. But it was when I got to university and a few of my friends played Bears Den it was the first band that I wanted to go, had this absolute yearning desire to go see live and to engage with every single song that they put out. Um, and it just reminds me again of that university days in my second year of university with a group of my best friends living in a house together, all playing this 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 album. So um, I think the reason I just love it so much is because it's so evocative. And it's acoustic instruments, it's close harmony vocals, it's banjos. There's a very natural flavour to the songs, isn't there? Yeah, the harmonies you point on there is, is is one of the main. There's there's a there's a track they have there on called Bad Blood, and the very end is done a cappella. Um, all of the all of the backing and the, the beds are stripped away, and it's just the, the vocalists who are harmonising. And it's absolutely beautiful. And it is akin to kind of traditional musical theatre. So it's a hark back to musical theatre. But it is pure, um, pure kind of vocalist, vocalists being vocalists and, and really, really showing what they can do. So the, the close harmonies are definitely something that I absolutely love as a part of the album. And is that something that you do with your choir? I presume it is. Yeah, of course. And um, there's no, there's no better feeling when you're singing. You all hit a harmony. Every, all the tenors and basses are, are doing what they're supposed to. Normally, I'm trailing off somewhere else and taking the uh, the melody. But when you are in live with three or four other people and you're all singing a very tight harmony and it sounds absolutely wonderful it is just the best feeling coming back to bear's den i i love the idea that for their first tour they were traveling across the usa in this convoy of vw camper vans Mm. and this was immortalized in the movie austin to boston it's a great film have you actually seen it i haven't i haven't and i'm a terrible fan of result for not seeing it but it's, uh, I have seen the um, Mumford and Sons did a did a tour. I think they were doing it in conjunction with Mumford and Sons, and they did a. There is a um, a show that they did. I think in Austin, um, 
before or after the the drive and it's just in the heartland of kind of american folk with the banjos playing and everything it's in this really interesting um like amphitheater almost and the rate seating is so steep so you just kind of look up and there's just people are all on top of one another um but yeah bears den they they learnt their craft and they, they very much honed their skills having been on tour with Mumford and & Sons and so many other brilliant artists. This is a particularly emotional set of songs, I think. Mm. And in that way, it's similar to the Ben Platt album. I mean, do these choices reveal an introspective, emotional side to Max Fosh? I, I just wonder. I It's a good question. And it, it, if... I mean, you're probably looking at things that I haven't ever looked at, Ian. Um, I, I, if I'm honest with it, it's just because I know all the words. <laughs> so I can put it on, it's because I can put it on the car and I know that I can, from start to finish, bang out all the lyrics um, absolutely 100%. Well, I'm going to join the Politics of Sound band again now. We're going to play a lovely song from that album, and that's Agape. Oh, great one. That was the Politics of Sound band playing the track Agape by Bear's Den. And that was the choice of my guest, Max Fosh. Max, we've come to your last choice, last album choice for this particular episode. What's the album? Uh, this this is this is really going back to seven-year-old Max. Um, and I've chosen um, Busted's first album titled Busted. Um, uh, which uh, yeah, which was released in 2002. Yeah. And uh, I mean, this is a big contrast to your other selections. I mean, I'm sensing that this is an album that you must have had bought for you. you as you say, you were seven years old when it was released. Yeah, this was an album. This was this was when I kind of uh, this was bought for me. Um, I think I think my sister bought, it. as I said earlier, we had this little um, CD player in her room. 
and we had this album by Buston, also Rim on the Third Floor by McFly. And those two in conjunction as I was growing up were just the, the just the sounds of my childhood. And it's it's so poppy and rocky and boy band from the noughties. It's absolutely unbelievable. Um, and, and for that reason, I absolutely love it. Well, Busted and indeed McFly were the sort of punk pop darlings of the early noughties. Mm. Why did they appeal to you so much? Did you just like leaping around the room listening to them? Yeah, I th- honestly think it's that. And I don't think that there was anything that they were writing um, in their lyrics that was particularly uh, that I <laughs> particularly associated myself with. I think what I go to school for is like, yes, I also go to school I'm not sure whether that was on the part of the record label who decided to make that 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 leap, but it was purely the the unadulterated joy in the and the manic craziness of the a lot of the songs that I just love so much. We've talked about the importance of creating a profile for yourself, either as an individual or as a, as a band. And this band were on the cover of Smash Hits magazine yes. before the release of their first single. I and remember they, they were doing this. it way back in the day, weren't they? I remember this. Yeah, they were all, they had this like, and I think as a, as a, as a, as a young, young boy, I just looked at each individual member and thought, am I this one? Am I that one? Like, I think there was, so there was James, Charlie and Matt and James had the one, had the very sweeping, um, ruffled hair. Matt was the bit of the, the rocker, the cool guy. And Charlie was the kind of suave, good looking, charming one. And I just saw myself as James, this little, almost <laughs> looks like a bit of a terrier, um, with his, <laughs> with his uh, fluffy hair and um, running around with the guitar. So, um, I think, yeah, I remember that smash that smash hits magazine cover very very well i mean can you see yourself though maybe stepping into their shoes not necessarily as a musician but you are a singer you're a comedian you're a filmmaker you're a personality i mean one day you could end up playing wembley arena in the way that they used i mean fingers crossed fingers crossed in i i think yeah one thing i don't think i've the one thing there isn't a similarity there is is our is our age demographic obviously busted were were performing and playing and they knew their audience was young i mean they, it went up to the upper echelons, but they knew that they were targeting kind of the the the, the eight to 18 bracket um which was me um but whereas i i know that my content is probably not uh, geared towards that demographic i know that my according to my analytics on youtube i've got a slightly older audience and they're between kind of 18 and 30 um and so maybe then they're, they're not going to be they, they understand that they're not going to be selling out wembley arena to hear me sing but maybe for something else maybe um, enough of them will turn up if I do a stand-up set. That album, it also has that other connection and there's that really wonderful close harmony vocals going on again. Mm. There is this recurrent theme. This is something you really love, isn't it? I absolutely love it. Yeah, no, you're so right. Um, there are a lot of close harmonies and it that is probably, uh, you've just pointed something out that I probably never realised. It's why I've I've probably kept that love of close harmonies throughout my, my, musical, um, my musical life. And the, another... Um, a another album that I was really really tempted to to pick was uh, a Brandy Carlisle who is an American folk singer um, and she she had an album that was released a couple of years ago that also had really really tight harmonies um, and it just kind of like is it does it is everything that I look for in an album. By the way, I forgive you after 
Well, they split in 2005 and then they reformed as this pop supergroop, Muck Busted. Oh, with what the group drama, Fly. what drama, Ian. Was, <laughs> and was that a big moment oh, for you, Max? It was a huge moment when they had the press, <laughs> the, the press conference in which Charlie Simpson decided that he no longer wanted to be in the band um, and he wanted to go off and do his own stuff. It was just heartbreaking for me. I was like, what are you doing to me, Charlie? Um, but you could have stepped into his shoes. Come on, you, you missed a trick there. <laughs> they were young, but they weren't. They weren't quite twelve years old. I wish I had kind of put my put my name forward. Um, but yes, they they joined. They made McBusted, and Charlie Simpson went off and did his own stuff with his own um, band called Fight Star. And I can totally understand why, because they were all so young when they started this. I think I think Charlie was sixteen when um, what I go to school for came out. And you suddenly then become part of a machine, a part of a musical industry that just decides what your what your progress is and, and tells you what to do. And so I can totally sympathise with him saying, do you know what? No, I want to start afresh. I want to start my own thing. Well, I'm going to join the Politics of Sound Band for the final time now. We're going to play the second track from the album, and that's You Said No. of Sound podcast, then why not check out the Debated Podcast hosted by me, Will Barber-Taylor. In the Debated Podcast, I chat to a plethora of people from all walks of life and all political backgrounds. In each half an hour to an hour episode, I discuss with one person or, in some special episodes, a group of people, political events of the day, things that they're interested in and that I hope you will be as well. You can find every episode of The Debated Podcast, over 100 episodes worth of content, on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, or anywhere that you listen to your podcasts. I hope you decide to check out The Debated Podcast. It's well worth a listen. Max, I want to take you back to one of your early street smart videos. You Mm. were asked by a student what subject you were studying. And when you respond with English literature, this guy says, are you looking forward to not having a career? What would you say to him now? (laughs) Firstly, what, what people don't know is that was actually the first ever staged joke 
on the channel because uh, he said that to me off camera. And I remember thinking, oh, that's quite a funny bit. And this was my first ever video. So I, got, I turned the camera back on and got him to do it again. Um, but what I would say to that is... <laughs> in a way, um, in a way, he's kind of right in the traditional in the traditional sense of the word, career-wise. I don't know how long this YouTube stuff is going to last. I don't know how long this entertaining is going to last for. So, in terms of a career, I'm not sure. He may be very well. He may be right. Um, but it's English literature. I mean, English literature didn't really help me in any way to 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 be like in terms of skills to teach me what I know uh, now. That was more just doing. So I guess in a way he's probably right, but I don't want to, to totally tarnish the English literature brush by, my, by me saying that. And coming back to the mayoral election, is there any chance that you could win? I mean, you are now fourth favourite, I think. Is that right? Yes. I mean, according to some bookies, I'm 50 to one odds on, um, <laughs> 50 to one odds to win. But no, there is there is absolutely no way that I'm winning. Um, and I, I think it is always fun um, as, as a journalist like yourself. It's always fun to ask the question and to dream. But and I know that that stranger things have happened. But even if we're just looking at, at my audience, which is the audience that are going to listen to me, I've got an audience of 400,000 subscribers across the world, of which 10% are London based. That's 40,000 of of which maybe 50% are eligible to vote, that's 20,000, of which 50% are actually going to go out and vote, which is 10,000. So there really isn't any way in which I'm going to be winning the election. Um, hopefully I can do some good by getting a some, some youth turnout to be slightly higher than normal, um, but also just to have an incredible experience and to say to my grandkids 50 years down the line, um, I, I once ran for mayor of London. Max Fosch, it's been fascinating. Good luck to you. And thanks so much for being my guest on The Politics of Sound. Thank you very much, Ian. Cheers. The Politics of Sound. Well, that's it for this month. My thanks, of course, to Max Fosch for being my guest and to Holly Wilson for all of her assistance in setting it up. As ever, joining me in the band this month was the guitarist Jeff Sprackling and the cellist Chris Hedges. We'll be back on the 1st of June, so in the meantime, enjoy the sunshine.